Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. For about $3, 3 to $4, you can buy a, a plastic bobblehead Jesus. And you can stick the bobblehead Jesus on the dashboard of your car. Every time you turn, his head will wobble. One advertisement for this product says you can stick him on wherever you need forgiveness. And he will guide you through the valley of gridlock. And it's kind of a comical way of getting at a tendency I think that we all have, I certainly do, to commodify Jesus or to treat him as something smaller than he is, as kind of a small, plastic, religious, good luck charm, you know, sticking him in our life wherever we need forgiveness or wherever we need guidance, and to treat him as if he is kind of ours to manipulate and control and not taking him on his own terms. I think we all um, are susceptible to that. Uh, again, I want to slightly amend Wilbur Reese's imaginative description. I know I've probably shared this two or three times over the past few years, but it just it, it sticks with me every time. The common view of God, he says, is this. I would like to buy $3 worth of Jesus, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of Jesus to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant, or forgive my enemies. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a, a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of Jesus, please. Well, the transfiguration that we heard read this morning gives us a glimpse into to Jesus' value. The weight, the weight of his glory and this is the key, as I've said, to the Christian spiritual life, beholding Christ in his glory, not as we've made him or reduced him. So let's see if we can behold Christ in his glory this morning and notice three things that the transfiguration illumines. First, the source of the spiritual life. Second, the end of the spiritual life. And lastly, the beauty of the spiritual life. So first, let's look at the source of the spiritual life. We're in Luke 9. If you want to follow along, your phones are in the Bible in front of you, in the pew, I think you have them. Um, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 and 29. Now about eight days after these sayings, that's after the teachings that have come before, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. Or in Matthew's account of the transfiguration, his face shone like the sun, and his clothing became dazzling. The, the Greek behind dazzling white here could just as easily be translated like lightning. In fact, the NIV does translate it that way. The word translated white here is not just like a color, the color white. It is actually in a, an apocalyptic color or description. It's the same color description John gives to the throne of God in Revelation 20. The same John who wrote Revelation was present on this mountaintop. And years later, he summarized what he eyewitnessed that day. In the transfiguration, and he wrote these words in John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, glory, glory is a word that carries on its back just the incredible weight, some of the weightiest moments of Israel's history, good and bad. 
So let's look very quickly at this word glory and through the narrative of Scripture. We first see God's glory in Exodus. When, when Israel leaves Egypt and is headed through the Red Sea, and God in his glory guides them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a fire at night. And next, this intimate encounter with God's glory. Um, I think I'm cutting in and out if you want to try this instead. Um, the most intimate encounter that Moses has with God's glory when he plainly asks Yahweh in Exodus 33, he says, show me your glory. And Yahweh grants his requests, but he offers a few important qualifications. Exodus 33:19, he says, okay, Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand in the cleft of the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And having just, just brushed like the trailing cloak of Yahweh's glory, Moses is smitten, and he remains on the mountaintop for 40 days. He's not eating and he's not drinking. He's inscribing the tablets of the law as God dictated it to him. And 40 days later, when he comes down off the mountain, his face is still radiant, just from barely touching the glory of God. And next, as Moses and the Israelites wander in the wilderness... God desires his glory to dwell with his people in the midst of them. So he instructs them to build a tent, a tabernacle, to roam with his people through the wilderness. And we read in Exodus 40 that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And finally, upon settling in the promised land, Solomon turned this roaming tabernacle into the temple. We read in 2 Chronicles that when Solomon finished praying to dedicate the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. It took very little time, unfortunately, for the triumph of this moment in the temple to turn into tragedy. Israel turned from God. They worshipped idols. They desecrated the temple. And then the low point of Israel's history comes. We read about it in Ezekiel 10. The low point of Israel's history. The Lord's glory leaves the temple and hovers above and goes over the Mount of Olives to the east and departs. And then the Old Testament concludes with this lingering question, will the Lord's glory ever return? Has he abandoned his people forever? This then is all background to Luke's account of Jesus' birth, where we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and what do we read? The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. And then there appeared a heavenly host around the angels, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest. Luke's narrative goes on then to build towards the transfiguration, this, this luminous moment when God's glory is just is definitively seen to have returned to his people. If you read just before the transfiguration, it's like it's building to this climax. In Luke 8 and 9, we see Jesus as the Lord of nature. He's calming the storm. And then we see him as the Lord over evil. He's casting out demons. And then the Lord of life, he's healing the sick and raising the dead. And then the Lord of creation, he's feeding the 5,000. And finally, from the lips of Peter, we hear this confession, you are the Messiah of God. 
And then comes the transfiguration, this, this miraculous and powerful confirmation of this confession, I am the Messiah. I am the glory of God. Come back to my people. And then we have Moses on the mountain there. We have Elijah on the mountain there. Moses is representing the law. And Elijah is representing the prophets. And yet, notice who is left standing in verse 36. We read in verse 34 that a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud of God's glory, as people always are when they encounter the glory of God. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, just as the voice said at Jesus' baptism, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, what do we read? Jesus was found alone. Do you see what's happening here? Moses and Elijah have receded, and Jesus is found alone, and it's like God is just putting a highlighter around him and saying, it's about him. He alone is the source of life. Bishop Barron summarizes what happens this way. Jesus is the very order and the very logic of God. Visibly, but yes, the, the law, okay? The law, the prophets, they were there, visibly there, but truly they were inadequate in the, in the long run. The commands, the, the prohibitions, the practices of the old law, these are now fully and personally and compellingly present in Jesus alone. He hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. So Moses and Elijah recede, and Jesus is found alone, the glory of God. Now, when you follow the yellow brick road and you see behind this curtain, you do not find a plastic, small, imposter, $3 worth of God. You find the God of glory in Christ the infinite creator of the world. And again, this is what separates Christ from every other religious figure. Now, for a moment, Jesus allows the curtains to be drawn back. And what pours through is his glory, God's own glory, the glory that led Israel through the wilderness and descended on the temple and then departed the temple, has returned in Jesus. Jesus is the source of spiritual life. Listen, Listen how theologian Thomas Oden, he writes my favorite systematic theology, classic Christianity. He describes God this way, and this is also true of Jesus. Jesus is the source and end of all things. That than which nothing greater can be conceived. Uncreated, I mean, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. That's a good definition. Uncreated, sufficient, necessary being infinite, unmeasurable, eternal one, Father, Son, and Spirit, all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-empowering creator, redeemer and consummator of all things, imminent without ceasing to be transcendent, holy one present in our midst, whose way of personal being is incomparably good and holy and righteous and just and benevolent and loving and gracious and merciful and forbearing and kind, hence eternally blessed eternally rejoicing, whose holiness is incomparable in beauty. It's a good definition of God. Now this, as we look at the transfiguration and we see Jesus revealed as God's own glory, this has apologetic force for us. And by that I mean for those who remain kind of open to Jesus but not quite convinced, would you consider that the Apostle Peter, who witnessed these things, was at least as smart as you and I? Probably a lot smarter. And he went to his death proclaiming the truth that he eyewitnessed this glory. Years after he witnessed Jesus' glory on the mountaintop, Peter writes. He writes a short devotion or reflection on this experience. And we read it in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 18. Peter writes these words. 
to a church, by the way, that's, that's in darkness, that's suffering great persecution under Rome. He writes these words to this church, take heart, okay? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, talking about God the Father, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter again says, if you didn't catch it, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Then he goes on to say, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's his way of saying until Christ comes again in glory. So Peter is putting it plainly for us, if I might sort of modernize his words. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I am not making this stuff up. I witnessed the glory of God Almighty in Jesus. I heard Yahweh speak to his beloved son and say, listen to him. So, listen to him. Pay attention to his word as a lamp shining in a dark place. It's been, it's been a dark week for our world. Reading about Russia's invasion and, and seeing, you know, for me, the image of the, of the apartment building struck by a missile and people injured and bodies ravaged and, and armed, armed preschool teachers, mothers, defending their homes with assault rifles. The world is dark. Where is the light? The transfiguration reveals Jesus as the source of light and life, of God Almighty himself. If only the world's politicians made his words the lamp by which they walked. His light would lead them to justice and to rest and to peace and to shalom for this weary world. We can't control what others do with this invitation, but, but will you receive this invitation to walk by the light of Christ, the source of life? So the transfiguration illumines Jesus as the source of spiritual life, but it also illumines the end of the spiritual life, the telos, the, the goal. Where is it all going? In his treatment of the transfiguration, Thomas Aquinas notes how, how fitting it was that Christ was transformed in glory at this moment. Why? Because if you just... Flip one page back in your Bible. Jesus has just given a very difficult teaching. He says, I'm not the Messiah who's going to conquer Rome and overthrow your enemies with power. I'm the Messiah who's going to be crucified and die on a cross. And by the way, if you follow me, you will too. You, will take up, you must take up your cross and follow me. And wow, that's a hard teaching. Now, whether you or I go the same way remains to be seen, but each of us knows at least that life can be arduous and difficult and hard. Failures and losses and traumas and sicknesses and griefs and disappointments in people or in things. Losses big and small, lost jobs or lost people, wars and rumors of war. Life is arduous. Beset by all this negativity, writes Bishop Robert Barron, a pilgrim on life's arduous way can easily succumb to despair can easily succumb to despair unless she is granted a glimpse of the glory that comes at the end of her striving. Aquinas argues that that is why Jesus allows, just for a moment, the veil to be torn for his glory, his final glory, that 
will be in the end to shine through. The transfiguration gives us a glimpse of the end of the story. It illumines not just who Jesus is, but who you and I and we will be in the end. We are to be like him. The Bible teaches that in the end, the Christian's destiny is to share in Christ's glory. We will have all of our tears dried and our smiling faces will be shining like Moses's with the lightning radiance of Christ's own present glory. And here again, I always think of, when I think of this final hope, I can't help, I'm sorry people, I can't help but go to Lord of the Rings with Gandalf and, and Pippin who are looking at the final battle coming towards Minas Tirith and Mordor's coming and it looks like the end is near and Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf says, end? No. The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. But then the gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. And Pippin says, what, Gandalf, what? And Gandalf says, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. Gandalf says, no, it isn't. And Pippin is deeply comforted. Now, if we know that the story ends in glory, it steals us with courage to endure, does it not? This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4, where he writes this exact point. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we read those words, light and momentary affliction, and it can almost feel insulting because our afflictions don't feel light. They don't feel momentary. They feel heavy and arduous, and they are. But in the final reckoning, at the end of the story, we will look back on them and see that was light. That was temporary. And it's nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that we now have in Christ's glorious presence. So not to minimize what you're going through now, but to help you with what you're going through now we have reason to hope, no matter how deeply we suffer. So the transfiguration gives us a glimpse of the end goal of spiritual life, a life saturated with the glory of God. Finally, the transfiguration illumines the beauty of the spiritual life. Here again, Aquinas is a good guide. He's meditating on the, on the glorious light of Christ's shining face, shining like the sun, says Matthew. And he begins exploring what our resurrected bodies will be like based on the New Testament's teaching. And he says four things. Our resurrected bodies will have four qualities. He says they will be beyond suffering, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. They will be able to move freely, meaning no sick, nothing can hamper them. They will, be, they will be full of life and vitality just as they were intended to be. They will not be obstructed by material things. We see Christ passing through the locked doors, don't we? And lastly, they will shine. They will radiate. Why is it that we find it so intuitive to think about holy things, perfect things, as kind of, of dazzling with light and shining with beauty? We paint halos over the heads of saints. We talk of holy people as having a sort of glow to their countenance. Aquinas' answer, again summarized by Bishop Barron, is simple. He says, we associate light with beauty because, sorry, light with holiness because light is beautiful and holiness is beautiful above all else. We might say it this way, that light is beautiful to the eye and holiness is beautiful to the eyes of the heart. Aquinas suggests that Jesus is shining with radiant light and trances us. It has the ability to, as we meditate on it, 
It has the ability to entrance us, to enchant us with this prospect of our own beautiful transfiguration. We see in that moment what we are destined for. Photographers all know of the magical glow of the golden hour, just after sunrise or before sunset. That light that makes everything magical and beautiful. The light of Jesus is the light that beautifies the soul. That leads us into being fully flourishing men and women, fully alive, walking in our purpose by the light of Christ. Holiness, beautiful to the soul. You know, this is something for us to cling to, I think. Um, for, for those of you who maybe find yourself discouraged by the state of the church, um, as leaders fall, as celebrity Christians or high-profile Christians deconstruct and, and leave the faith, ultimately, as segments of the church worship politicians or indulge in fearful conspiracy theories or reduce the gospel to do-goodism do or whatever it is that has you maybe somewhat disillusioned with the church. I don't blame you for that. I actually think that God has given Advent a beautiful ministry to those of you who are experiencing that. I think this is a place of healing. But I just want you to, I want to say to you, if you're in that place at all, will you behold the radiance of Jesus? Ask him to reveal his glory to you before you give up on him. See that his words are still a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, when some of the disciples left Jesus after he gave a very hard teaching about his body in John 6, Jesus looked around to his disciples and said, well, will you leave me too? And there are plenty of reasons you and I might have as we look around to say, I don't know about the church anymore. But as you hear Jesus ask you, will you leave me too? Hear the response of Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the source of life. You're the light of the world. To whom shall we go? So the transfiguration shows us that Jesus is the source of the spiritual life. Shows us the end of the spiritual life is to share in his glory and the, the, the beauty of the spiritual life to shine with Christ's holiness. In the end, the transfiguration refuses to, it, it reminds us to be careful about reducing to Jesus, reducing Jesus to someone or something less than he is. It refuses to allow us $3 worth of Jesus. The kind of thing isn't doing Ukrainian Christians or Russian Christians or you or I any good as we face the arduous path of life. Our souls are dark and we need the beautiful grace of Christ to lighten them. Our circumstances are dark and we need the hope of Christ to lighten them. Our world is dark and it needs the source of life, the light of the world to lighten it. So as we look to Ash Wednesday next week, in the beginning of the Lenten season, you'll be invited into a season of prayer and reflection and repentance and fasting. Because when Peter, James, and John followed Jesus in prayer up to the mountain, they left behind a lot of comforts of life to follow Jesus. And as they did, they beheld him for who he is in his glory. And they basked in his light. I wonder if their faces came down shining. So Lent acknowledges that the world, our circumstances, our souls, they're dark. And we are in need of the light of Christ. And so this Lent, I'm going to invite you through these practices to just come up the mountain with Jesus, to behold his glory, which alone can scatter the darkness from before your path. I want to conclude with, again, our collect for the day, which beautifully summarizes what I've tried to say. 
O God, who before the passion, the crucifixion and resurrection of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.